Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Tunnel vision. Israel insists Hamas is using Al-Shifa hospital as a cover for a command center. Doctors there deny it. Our guest says the IDF strategy is the only option, despite international concern about the threat to innocent civilians. Pay attention. The president of a small business tells us about the challenge of maintaining his pledge to be one of the hundreds of living wage employers in British Columbia. They won't step up, so he is stepping down. After 19 years, dysfunction has driven Democratic Congressman Brian Higgins out of Washington, D.C. He'll tell us what he thinks has gone wrong in the House and whether there's any hope of fixing it. The never-ending story. A California book club has spent 28 years reading and rereading the James Joyce novel Finnegan's Wake, a famously challenging jibber-jabber-jammed text He says you can never truly finish, although it might finish you. A shooting star is born, though we could also go with rock star because our colleague Nicole Mortolero has not just won a big award for her science journalism, she now also has an asteroid named after her. And putting the fancy in infancy, the French fashion house Dior finally crafts a fragrance aimed at the member of your family who frankly struggles most with their problematic odors, your baby. As it happens, the Tuesday edition... Radio that guesses it's never too early to start toiletry training. A major hospital in Gaza City is still surrounded by fighting between Israel and Hamas. Last night we told you about one doctor on staff at the Al-Shifa hospital, Hamam Alom, who reportedly died in an airstrike nearby. Today the BBC is reporting that staff at the hospital buried dozens of bodies in a mass grave. People around the world have condemned the Israeli attacks around Al-Shifa, where Palestinians have gone seeking treatment and safety. U.S. President Joe Biden says civilians there must be protected, but today the White House said Hamas is using the hospital to run military operations and store weapons. And Israel claims Hamas has a vast complex hidden beneath al-Shifa, an allegation Hamas and hospital officials deny. Chuck Freilich is a former Israeli deputy national security advisor. We reached him on the road between New York and Boston. Chuck, I'm wondering what you think when you see and hear what civilians are going through at al-Shifa hospital. Well, obviously, I feel very sorry for them. Nobody wants to hurt civilians, and nobody wants to hurt civilians in a hospital. But the onus here isn't on Israel. The onus is on Hamas. They started the war in the most barbaric fashion imaginable, and they're the ones who built four underground bunkers, command posts, underneath this hospital, intentionally doing it, There's no other way to go about the objective of destroying Hamas, and I think that's essential, without doing this. I spoke to a nurse last week uh, on our program on Friday. He works at the hospital normally, had fled because they were told to to get out, was hiding out in a Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders building with his family as the bombardments continued. And he said, nowhere is safe. It's, It's our destiny as Palestinians, to be bombed. Why should any group of innocent people be subjected to that, Chuck? They're not Hamas. They're innocent people. Well, their government is Hamas, and unfortunately there is a link between people and the government. And when we fought the Nazis in World War II, nobody said, well, we're going to spare the German people. As a matter of fact, the objective at the time was exactly the opposite. In those days, it was to hit civilians. Okay, today we try not to, so there's an improvement in the world. Uh, When the U.S. went in to um, 
the city's escaping me in in Iraq. There's a big uh, urban siege there. But we've learned uh, we've learned kind of we've learned from those times. I mean, should no, no, that was just a few years ago. And the thing to learn here is that you cannot intentionally start a war by uh, slaughtering civilians with the precise objective of drawing Israel in, because they knew that Israel would have no choice but to respond this way, and that's exactly what they want. Because then their civilians get hurt, and they look better in international opinion. They make Israel look bad. The onus isn't on Israel. Unless you think that Hamas should be allowed to continue living, uh, existing, then the onus is on them. But I wonder if you think this, based on your experience, if this strategy is actually working. Because even if the IDF in Israel were able to carry out their stated goal of rooting out Hamas or dismantling Hamas, if that were possible even, what's happening right now and the level of fighting and death and civilian toll is fueling a new generation of anger and divisions and mm-hmm. hate on both sides right. of the border, right? So is this strategy really working? Is this the best strategy in this case? Well, I don't know that Israel is going to succeed in killing every last Hamas fighter, and that's not the objective. The objective is to kill most of them and hopefully to topple Hamas as the governing body in Gaza. And then maybe a better governing body can be brought in, and uh, maybe we can even go back to a peace process. Um, Do you think that can happen with this? We've spoken to experts who who aren't sure that in in Israel that Netanyahu is the leader that that peace can actually come with. Even if they agree with the force, they don't think he should be the one in charge. Yeah, no, I don't think he is, and I don't think he'll be in uh, office for very long when the war ends. Mm -hmm. Sooner or later, as in all democracies, and in this case, I think it's going to be quite soon, there will be a change of government in Israel. Uh, When's there going to be a change of government on the Palestinian side? They established a radical theocracy in Gaza. Well, we, but people don't. There's recent uh, recent research conducted just the day before these attacks. Actually, this is from the Arab Barometer. They found that the majority of people in Gaza don't support Hamas. They believe it's corrupt. They blame them for more of their problems in many cases than they do Israel. So we don't okay. know that people there don't want change right now. But let me ask you, you know, we know no, but Hamas. Actually, most, mm-hmm. most assessments are that if free and fair elections were held in the, among the Palestinians today, Hamas would probably win. That's that's not so, the research from Arab Barometer. Well, but but well, let me there, let me ask you, though, different sources. there isn't there. There is disagreement about what the reality is or is not at this hospital, without definitive proof then, Chuck, why should the world believe Israel when it says Hamas is using this hospital as a base? The definitive proof is that there is very strong intelligence information that Israel has, which to the best of my understanding has been confirmed by American intelligence. And when the uh, battle over this hospital ends, which by the way could end instantaneously, they didn't have to be a battle if Hamas agreed uh, not to have one there, but when the battle is over, we'll go down into the basements there and into this bunker beneath the hospital and we'll find out, okay? But of course the media won't then come back and say, oh, we were mistaken. And that's been the case time after time after time when the people say, oh, well, Israel, you don't have any proof. You have support from the United States you've had for a long time. Israel has. Now we're seeing a shift in in what U.S. President Joe Biden is saying. He's saying the hospital must be protected. What do you think he expects from Israel when he says that? I think the president is expressing an understandable desire to minimize casualties. It's something that Israel fully shares. You didn't hear the president saying, don't do this. Mm -hmm. You didn't hear him saying that Israel's objective of uh, trying to destroy Hamas is wrong. Just to the contrary, the president has been very, very supportive of, of that. And, uh, I mean, unfortunately, the horrors of war, uh, this is one of them. So, again, if Hamas wants there not to be a battle over the hospital and other hospitals and, and lots of other uh, really sensitive civilian facilities in Gaza, because there were schools, there were uh, youth centers, there's all sorts of things, if they don't want to surrender completely, that's fine. Then don't wage a battle over these places. Why don't they invite the IDF in and say, hey, show us, okay? Prove to us that we have these underground facilities. Maybe they're right. Chuck, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Chuck Freilich is a former Israeli deputy national security advisor. We reached him on the road between New York and Boston.
Brian Higgins was first elected to Congress 19 years ago, a Democrat from Buffalo who arrived in Washington with some big ideas about the work he was going to do. Now he says he's done with D.C., so done that he's leaving before his term is even finished. And the reason he's leaving so abruptly, he says, is that the Capitol and Congress aren't what they used to be. We reached Brian Higgins on Capitol Hill. Congressman Higgins, was there one moment that triggered this decision for you? No, it's a culmination of just general dysfunction and the lack of seriousness on the part of uh, members of Congress to advance legislation uh, that is meaningful and that has the uh, viability to become law. And I just have better things to do with my time. Is it just your political opponents who are to blame for the dysfunction you describe? Uh, for the most part, since the, you know the last year since January, that you know the multitude of rounds of votes that are required uh, to elect a speaker, which are traditionally uh, you know much more efficient, uh, much more timely, uh, it is uh, just as I said, the lack of, of, of seriousness. You know, people yelling expletives at the back of the chamber when the president of the United States is delivering uh, his State of the Union address. Um, and it's just it's just reached a point. And, you know, Moody's, which uh, is a rating agency, mm-hmm. last week lowered uh, the, assess- the assessment of U.S. credit worthiness, the outlook from stable to negative. And they cited, you know, the exact same problem, and that is uh, political congressional dysfunction. If you feel that way about things, how you said a moment ago, what is the average American supposed to take away from that? There's there's distrust or, you know, even even before the last five, ten years, people have always thought there's always been a contingent who thinks that nothing ever gets done. It takes too long to, to make anything happen. And that's intensified clearly and devolved, as you're saying, into a dysfunctional situation. But what is the average person sitting at home supposed to take away from this if someone with all of your experience says, I'm out? Well, I think that uh, the American people are way ahead of Uh, Congress on this issue. I think people come to Washington, they get immersed in the culture, Mm -hmm. and they lose a sense of of reality. Um, I represent a community, Buffalo, New York. Uh, For me, the job has been very different. I never came here to change the world. I came here to change my community and use the resources of the federal government. So I do think that the American people uh, are well aware of this. I think they're more aware of this uh, than Congress thinks they are. And I would argue that Congress has a self-loathing complex. It, it beats itself up and in, in the process undermines the integrity uh, of an institution which is among the greatest in- institutions in the world historically uh, and potentially. It's just uh, we have suboptimal results. And uh, I think you're going to see a lot more people announce that they're leaving and or uh, retiring at the end of this term. What's it going to take for Congress to snap out of it then? I think we're at a bad patch. My concern is that we're at the beginning of that, not the end of it. Uh, I do believe uh, that American democracy and, uh, and the institution of the United States Congress, both the House and the Senate, are resilient. I think that will change. It ebbs and flows. Uh, but I think that's going to take a, a lot of time. And, and when you're dealing with a succession of votes on amendments to reduce everybody's salary to a dollar, that's just not serious because mm-hmm. it's never going to become law. But that individual who sponsors that legislation gets up, they talk about it, they get a lot of hits uh, on social media, and they use it they weaponize it, but they also monetize it as well. And that has become a trend that is too common and is unprecedented, uh, I think, in the history of Congress. There are people uh, in your own party that are known to grandstand as well, too, or, or look for those viral videos, no? No, that's true, and that's fair. Uh, and I think that is a problem generally mm-hmm. with the 24-hour news cycle, with uh, with the uh, with social media and And it's a trend. And I think, you know, sometimes it's used for good uh, to convey uh, what members are working on, but it's also uh, used in a very uh, selfish way as well. What kind of person or what kind of vision or change needs to come to bring things back to the right course, do you think? We're just one year away from the 2024 
election, right? Yeah, I think it's a general operating philosophy. Mm-hmm. And here's what I would argue. There's two ways of doing this. Uh, people, you know, they, they try to exploit uh, their visibility, their voice within the 24-hour news cycle. When you do a retrospective about what's actually been accomplished, the conclusion is pretty much nothing. Mm-hmm. I think the real challenge, and a lot of people whose names you'll never hear of, they identify what's important, uh, they find a focus, they sustain a focus, and they produce a positive outcome. Uh, they have a vision, but they're prepared to do the hard work necessary to make that uh, vision a reality. People that are making names for themselves are making spectacles of themselves. And what I would argue is that um, you need uh, to, to, to look at the people that are doing the workhorses of Congress, not the show horses. Mm-hmm. You've been a guest on As It Happens many times in the past, often to talk about issues uh, at the border. But now that you're leaving office, you can you can speak your mind uh, even more than before. So we have to ask, what do you really think of Canadians? Love Canadians. <laughs> uh, I spent uh, most of my summers as a kid uh, along the Canadian shores of Lake Erie. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the United States and Canada are, you know, unlike the rest of the world, we're not surrounded by hostility and instability. Uh, we're surrounded by fish and friends. We value the same things, uh, an open economy, uh, the environment, human rights, and just find that reliable, predictable access from Canada to Western New York and Western New York to Canada adds tremendously to the benefit of both economies and the life qualities uh, of people on both sides of the border. Congressman Higgins, thank you. Thank you for having me again. Congressman Brian Higgins is a Democrat from Buffalo, New York. He's in Washington, D.C. Journalism awards are great. Our colleague Nicole Mortolero recently won a big one for her reporting on the intersection of race and science alongside Quirks and Quarks producer Amanda Buckowitz. And today, Nicole delivered the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences Kavli Lecture in recognition of that award. It's a great honor, absolutely deserved. But on top of all that, she has just earned another distinction that is even loftier, literally in this case. She's had an asteroid named after her. We reach Nicole Mortolero in Toronto. Nicole Mortolero, what can you tell us about Asteroid Mortolero? <laughs> well, I was thrilled to, to find out that it is found in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. And it is 9.3 kilometers wide. Wow. So it's, it's bigger than I thought. <laughs> and its formal name is 20042 Mortolero. And its orbit is 4.15 years. So I was pretty impressed to get all that information. It absolutely is very impressive number included. How does one go about this? How was this bestowed upon you? Basically, the International Astronomical Union names all astronomical bodies, and including what they call minor planets or asteroids. And people can put in suggestions for uh, names. And in my case, that recommendation was put forth by the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, which I am a member. But I, it's just like a year and a half ago, two years mm-hmm. And I, so I kind of didn't think about it. And I looked for the week before, didn't see anything. And then all of a sudden I got a Facebook message saying, hey, congratulations, <laughs> well Facebook. deserved. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he, someone that you admire very much, who's been instrumental in your career, uh, also had a similar honor. Yes. Who's that? That's Ivan Semenyuk. I, he was the reason why I went into journalism. He is uh, a science uh, writer for The Globe and Mail. Back when I saw him in the journalism lounge at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, he was on Daily Planet, and he was the inspiration as to why I actually wanted to become a science reporter. So right below my name is his name in the, in the uh, bulletin. I was just thrilled. Apart from that moment in the, in the TMU lounge, your love of, of astronomy goes way back, right? What was that moment mm-hmm. when you decided, this? I'm hooked, this is it for me? Um, when I was eight years old, uh, the Voyager spacecraft flew by Saturn, took a picture. We got those pictures. And I was in school, and my teacher put it up on, you know, one of the 
Bristol boards on the, on the, you know, and I was just stunned and I couldn't believe it. And I went outside at recess and I was looking up to the sky and I was thinking, oh my gosh, there are planets out there. And, uh, and one of my friends came running over and saw me looking up and said, oh, what are you looking at? And I said, there are planets out there. And she looked up and said, oh, okay, and just left. And, <laughs> you know, but for me, that was it. I was just, I was hooked. So, and on top of that, there there is another honor that you've been celebrating this week. You were awarded a while back the American Association for the Advancement of Science Award, but this morning you gave a lecture related to to that award, and and you won that prize along with Quirks and Quarks producer Amanda Buckowitz. So, tell us about that. Yeah, I I have to say first, this was Amanda's baby, and I was asked to host, which I was honored to do again because it was Quirks and Quarks, something I grew up with. The special was Black in Science, and it looked at, you know, um, how science actually has been unjust to uh, black people over the centuries and um, and looking at a historical, uh, looking at it through a historical lens. Was there anything in it that, that surprised you as you worked on that episode? So much. I can't, I can't begin to tell you one of the ones that stands out and I was you know and I was sort of ashamed that I didn't know more about this but you know yes I know that we were you know treated and fairly believed to be inferior throughout you know uh, history but one of the biggest ones was the Tuskegee uh, syphilis study where almost 400 men with the disease African-American men were left untreated as part of a U.S. government experiment. And that just gutted me. And it just really hit home that we haven't, throughout history, we haven't been seen as people. We've always been seen as inferior. You know, I had one student ask me today, you know, you know, science is supposed to be unbiased, and, and it hasn't been, especially in terms of healthcare. That's a big one. Uh, but today, this student said, well, how can we stop that? And really, what it is, is to get Voices, different voices. Nobody really big enough. Nobody was really big enough to challenge that. Um, and, and certain with um, scientists at the time who were making these claims. But things have changed, and I'm seeing a lot more people question studies and you know and findings. And that's what it's about. And it's about having multiple experts and their opinions and diverse voices, especially um, when it comes to that. CBC News audiences will certainly be familiar with your name uh, and your work. But as you continue to do that work and get these awards as a black science reporter, who's also a woman, I wonder what you hope young people who maybe don't run into you in a lounge but do run into your work, what do you want them to take away from your experience? Yeah, I, I want them to know that there are other people out there um, that look like them, that do the job and that this career is open to them. When I went to TMU, it was not, um, it, I didn't have any inspiration. Like any, like I said to you, Ivan Menick was my inspiration for becoming a, a science reporter, for choosing that career. But there was nobody who looked like me that I knew of. And as you mentioned, especially not a, a black woman. So I want people to know, young people to know, kids to know, because that's where you get them, that's where it starts, Um, that they can do this, that there are other people out um, in the field that that look like them and are here to hopefully inspire and don't give up, because it took me 20 years. And here you are with an asteroid and then some. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thank you, Nicole, and congratulations. Thank you. Take care. Nicole Mortalero is a senior science reporter for CBC News and just had an asteroid named after her. We reached her in Toronto.
baby's down for a nap. It's time to think about some of the big choices for the future. Should you stay with cloth diapers or switch to disposable? When should you apply to get into daycare and, and which one? And what should your baby's signature scent be? Maybe you weren't thinking about the last one. Maybe you think your baby smells basically perfect. But the people at the legendary fashion house Dior think your baby smells basically basic. And fortunately, they are here to help. First, let's switch this tired, cliched old lullaby for some obscure 70s French space disco. much chicer. Now, at first you may be resistant to the idea of a scent for your baby, but what if I told you that, in a poetic encounter between children's fashion and fragrance, baby Dior has renewed the challenge set by Christian Dior to create the tender scent of childhood magic? Would that change your mind? Would you even understand it, would you say? Would I? Well, no, I, I wouldn't, but it is the statement Dior has issued about the new baby fragrance Bonne Etoile. A scented water with notes of wild rose, white musk, and pear, unspecified type of pear. The bottles will come in different pastel colors, and those bottles will sell for the equivalent of $317 Canadian. That might seem a bit steep for baby perfume, but Dior clearly believes it's going to sell. And if you're the kind of person who wants your baby to smell très chic, I guess you're happy to pay through the nose. Toby Berazal is a certified living wage employer. If you go to the website for the program called Living Wage for Families BC, you'll find the logo for his company there, along with the logos and names of hundreds of other BC businesses and organizations. Those companies are all in good company, but not all of them will stay on that list. A recent article in the Globe and Mail says the rising cost of living is making it harder for some businesses to continue participating in the program. Toby Berazal is the president of Eclipse Awards, which sells awards and eco-friendly trophies. We reached him in Vancouver. Toby, how much harder is it is it becoming for you now to keep your logo on that web page and continue to be a living wage employer in British Columbia? It's definitely one of the more challenging times. Uh, every year when the new living wage comes out, we obviously reassess, you know, if we're going to stay committed to the program, which we are, uh, and then we figure out how to how to make that work. But uh, certainly with the rising cost of, of everything really over the past year or two, it's, uh, it's definitely made it a bit more of a, a challenge. It, has it ever been at this level in terms of difficulty over the, the decade or so you've been a part of it? Um, not as much. I, I think last year was the most significant mm -hmm. jump. I think, I think it went up about $4 an hour after having been kind of level through the, the pandemic. I think mm -hmm. they kind of left it up for those couple of years. Uh, and then this most recent jump is significant, but not as large as last year. So I think this year was about a 6% increase. So yes, still a lot, um, but not as, as big a, a jump as last year. And just give our listeners a sense for, for you and, and your company and your team in particular, what are the financial challenges? I mean, certainly listeners right across Canada and the US and elsewhere can relate to inflation and cost of living increases. But what does that look and feel like for you? Yeah, it's something that's really affected uh, really every aspect of business in terms of uh, the cost of our materials, the cost of energy, uh, of, of shipping things. Uh, it's really it's really had an effect, and then of course that that does affect um, the consumers as well. People are more budget conscious. You know, they don't have as much uh, money to spend as as they did before. So it certainly comes at us from from both sides as a business. How big is your team? How many people on staff? Uh, we've got nine people, so we're a smaller company. Yeah. But yeah, we've we, you know we're a tight team and we work well together. And you know, I want the best for for my staff. And you know, living wage is kind of one way to yeah. to approach that. So um, you know, we just have to try and figure out a way to to make it work. It, uh, it's, but it's it certainly, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say it, it certainly relies on a lot of things. Uh, 
you know, in particular uh, consumers as well, that, that it matters to them. If it does matter to them um, that there are companies paying living wages, then, you know, it's certainly helpful if, if they actually support those companies, mm. um, you know, and consider that in their buying decisions. And if they understand that, you know, prices might fluctuate even even more or differently because of what you've signed on to do. Um, yes, yeah, that is the, the reality is at some point, you know, the, the prices do have to reflect that. But the living wage isn't uh, just strictly um, wages. Mm-hmm. It does take into account other things, other benefits that you're able to offer staff in terms of uh, maybe sick days or time off or, or holiday um, extra holidays or, or other benefits. So there are there are ways to achieve living wage that aren't strictly about um, raising wages, but but of course that certainly is the, yeah. a big part of it. So those are are those other levers that you're mentioning a way for you to to stay on in this program, even though you're you're in a really difficult spot. I think so. Yeah, we'd have to kind of look at a combination of maybe a little bit more time off, uh, maybe a, a partial wage increase maybe an adjustment of our prices. Um, so yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a few different things that we need to look at to to stay involved with the program, but we'll we'll find a way to do it. When you talk about that small team, it sounds like a like a family uh, as well, a work family, albeit. Is is that the reason you, you wanted to sign on to this in the first place? Yeah, it is. I think uh, you know, well being of, of my staff and my team is is a big part of uh you know, what it means to me to be in business. I've never really understood, you know, management fighting with their staff. It just uh, it doesn't make sense to me. So, yeah, I've always really tried to find a way to make a good place for, for staff to work in the working conditions, in the actual office, and then also, you know, in the wages and the benefits that we provide to them. And we can't give them everything as a small company, but uh, certainly do uh, try. And I think the living wage is kind of a good you know, one good way to to approach that. And, and how are your staff members responding as you speak out about the difficulties right now? I think they understand. I mean, they, you know, the, I think we're all feeling the pressure, um, you know, myself included. We're all noticing that prices are just in the general cost of living, especially in, in a city like Vancouver, have, have gone up really significantly over the past a uh, couple of years and um you know I certainly feel it myself and so you know they know that that we're trying to to figure this out you know they know that um you know we have to make our sales as, as well in order to survive and to kind of keep things going so i think they know it's a bit of a, a balancing act and just for our listeners who who may be learning about this this program um for the first time it, just just describe it's it's different from the minimum wage offer in Vancouver for example for sure, the minimum wage I think is is set by the government. Mm-hmm. I think it's around sixteen dollars in in BC. Um, living wage is currently in the twenty five dollars an hour range, so it's a fair bit higher. Uh, and the living wage is kind of it's based on a, a few different things, like a, a, like a bundle of goods, like housing, food, childcare, uh, clothing, things like that, and, and they use that to determine. Uh, what an average wage would be, you know, to to have a, a decent life in Vancouver. It's not certainly a wage where, uh, you know, people are making a, a, a ton of money, uh, but it hopefully gives them enough to, um, you know, have a, a decent life and, and raise a family in in a city. So uh, that's the general idea mm-hmm. of of a living wage. Toby, thank you. Great, thank you as well. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Toby Berezal is the president of Eclipse Awards in Vancouver. That's where we reached him. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. 
Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Vivian Silver dedicated her life to peace, and she was killed at the start of a war. The Canadian-Israeli peace activist was at her home in southern Israel on October 7th when Hamas-led militants attacked. Originally, it was thought that she'd been taken hostage, but now her family says her remains were recovered on Kibbutz Be'eri. The 74-year-old grew up in Winnipeg and moved to Israel in 1974, where she dedicated her life to building bridges and pushing for peace. In 2012, Vivian Silva returned to Winnipeg to talk about the need for a shared Arab and Jewish society in Israel and whether such a thing was possible. The truth is I don't think we have any choice. Um, morally, to me, it's not acceptable that we have uh, different statuses of people and we need to recognize that the majority can accommodate a national Arab minority with full and equal rights. And if we don't, um, life is not going to be good for either of us uh, in the country. I think we're tired of war and conflict, and it's time to change the paradigm. Mm-hmm. So what actually needs to happen on ground to, uh, for this to become a reality in Israel as a whole? Uh, well, I think uh, people's minds uh, have to be opened, I think, uh, to, to different possibilities, uh, to change the paradigm of uh, we-they, that um, they are our enemy uh, on both sides, uh, that we have common interests, that it isn't in our interest to continue this conflict, it's in our interest to solve this conflict, uh, and it's in in our interest to recognize each other's identities and that we're part of the same country and work towards um, positive change, whether it be uh, education, uh, economics, or uh, service providing. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this and a lot of people around the world uh, believe that, that there, there should be peace. There should be a shared uh, nation, uh, shared Israel between uh, Jewish and Arab people. But how do you bolster people? How do you give them that energy and that strength to, to get past the naysayers? Because there are a lot of naysayers out there. Yes, um, that is true. However, uh, we have uh, created alternative models. We have a Arab-Jewish group of uh, 40 young people who are doing a gap year program together who are proof that things can be different, that uh, as long as you are proud of your own identity, then you ex- can accept uh, and value someone else's identity. I think we have to recognize the fact that we have two separate narratives. We're not going to agree on a narrative in Israel, and we don't have to in order to create a new shared narrative. From 2012, that was Vivian Silver speaking to the CBC's Ismaila Alpha on the Winnipeg Weekend Morning Show. The family of the Canadian-Israeli peace activist has confirmed that she was killed in the attacks on October 7th. Six seconds of gibberish that felt like about 600 seconds. And it is gibberish. That was James Joyce scholar Finn Fordham reading the 100-letter-long made-up word from the first page of Finnegan's Wake on the BBC World Service. And if you think six seconds is a long time to devote to a made-up word, Jerry Fialka would like a word with you. He has spent the last 28 years reading Finnegan's Wake with his book club, all 628 pages, and saying that that James Joyce book must have been a bit of a challenge to read would do a disservice to the chaotic, complicated feat Mr. Fialka and his club just achieved. We reached him in Venice, California. Jerry, uh, how many words are in Finnegan's Wake? Wow, that is a great question. I don't know. It's 628 pages, and there are 10 100-letter words. That's what you just heard, although the 10th one is 101 letters. (laughs) What word would you use to describe the last 28 years you've spent reading Finnegan's Wake? Oh, that's a great question, and you're going to read Finnegan's Wake right now. You don't have to spend 28 years by repeating this word that's in Finnegan's Wake. Laugh tears. Laugh tears. 
There you go. You read the whole book. (laughs) That is a, a way that Joyce conveyed what the human experience is. The human condition is that you fall and then you get back up. You know, as you're describing that, it certainly sounds a lot like the range of emotions we have on this program every day. Well, that's exactly why you're you're exactly what Finnegan's Wake is. You're trying to study the hidden psychic effects of radio. It's not producing the content. It's how you're making your audience feel. So the name of your show exactly nails Finnegan's Wake. As it happens, IT stands for information technology, or <laughs> what is it? It. It's what's happening right now. Uh, and, and Neil, we're, we're, we are living in the moment. That is what's important, is you live in the moment. You take a deep breath and consciously right now, one, two, three, and release. <laughs> it's a breathwork now, class in here now. Do. But is that, is we, that why you love do. Finnegan's Wake so much? Because, it, it, you know, with this group of people that's been with you over these 28 years that you're, that you're living these moments together. Right. We, we live in the present. Like, right, me, me and you right now, we're living in the present, and we're consciously listening and talking. So when you consciously read a book with a group of people out loud, you're more aware of what the words are doing to you, not so much the content. So that's why people go, well, the book is just gibberish. No, there's content, and this is who, you know, a great Canadian, and many Canadians have helped me understand all of this, Marshall McLuhan, Joyce took an eye experience reading black ink on white paper and turned it into an ear experience. You're looking at the black ink on white paper, but you're also hearing it mispronunciated by other people in the group. You're like going, oh, I wouldn't have pronounced that word this way. Let me ask you, Jerry, how do you go about tackling this text? You read a page or two out loud with a group of people. You listen to what everybody's reading, and then you discuss it. That yeah. The middle part's sort of not so important. You're, mm-hmm. like, trying to figure out what gibberish means. But there's a lot of meaning. I mean, there's you can buy a BMW and a car by writing books about what you think the wake is about. <laughs> so people think there's a lot of content there. I, I tend to say there's no content. It's as Sam Beckett says, it's language about language. It's not about something. It is something. It's reading. In fact, McLuhan was crossing the border once, and the custom officer says, hey, dude, you, you know Timothy Leary. Do you got any? He goes, what, LSD? No, I don't, I don't do LSD, <laughs> but my friends who read Finnegan's Wake out loud say that it's like having a psychedelic experience. Uh, so no, no LSD is consumed during your meetings when you read just, no, it's just the experience. No, and anybody, you, some, some reading clubs drink wine or drink beer, but you, you can do whatever you want. It's like a party. You're sitting around singing songs together. Sounds like pretty great. Like a hootenanny. Who's, who's coming out? And is it, has it been the same group for 28 years, or do people come and go? People come and go. We've had 12-year-olds to 95-year-olds. You know, it's mainly middle-aged people who want to act like they're intellectual and reading highbrow <laughs> literature. And it's, people, <laughs> and it's people who are like uh, lovers of Man Magazine. Come on. You know, Alfred E. Newman meets Harold Bloom. This is, this is fun expansive learning it's not high it's not academic highbrow though it can be and we welcome that it's street it's it's slang you ever listen to the song louie louie by the kingsman well that's finnegan's wake you you know the u.s government's paid people two years to study the lyrics they go did he just say a dirty word no it's trying it's rock and roll in print can you ever, even after 28 years, can one really ever say they've finished this book? No, you don't ever finish it, and that's (laughs) the beauty of it. I mean, you can say you finish it. People go, I've read it five times to myself silently and and three times out loud with a group, and they know it's an ongoing process. It's, It's so deep. It invented, Joyce invented talk radio and disguised it as a book. Why is it that you, you can never finish it? Well, 
I mean, literally, it's because the last page ends mid-sentence, and then it picks up at the beginning of the book, so it's a cyclical book. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, good food, what do they call that soul food? Um, comfort food. That's what the wake is. It's like comfort food. It's like why Andy Warhol and Ben and Pop Art was or helped in Ben Pop Art because... His mom served him Campbell's soup, you know, and that's what we, we read Joseph Campbell's soup to understand the wake. This is like, you know, what, what you return to every day. You need that human voice over the radio airwaves. Jerry, I'm glad that's, we could speak. Thank you. I don't think any other interview uh, will ever be like this one. Thank you so much. Jerry Fialka runs a book club that has been reading James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake for 28 years and counting. He's in Venice, California. When historian Renaud Moria first ordered up a box from Britain's National Archives, he wasn't quite sure what he would find inside it. But a scant catalog listing for letters written to French prisoners of war in the mid-1700s had piqued his curiosity. He figured they would be worth a gander. It turned out the catalog listing wasn't quite right. The messages had been written well before the soldiers in question were captured by the British, but his instinct about their gander-worthiness was spot on. Renaud Moria is a historian at the University of Cambridge in Cambridge, England. That's where we reached him. Renaud, I'm trying to imagine that moment. What a moment it must have been for you. What exactly did you find when you opened that box? Yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful moment and also a, a, a moment tinged with sadness as well. Yeah. Wonderful because as a historian, you you rarely get a, a chance to, to, to peek into... Uh, the private uh, letters exchanged by uh, people dead uh, 250 years uh, ago. And uh, the sadness, because the very fact that I found those letters meant that they never reached their addresses. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Who who were they meant for? Who were they supposed to reach? So they were sent to the crew of a French ship called uh, La Galate, the Galatea. And uh, it was actually uh, supposed to go to uh, Canada to uh, Louisbourg in uh, New France, as it was then called, mm-hmm. Nouvelle France. And uh, the ship was captured mm-hmm. by the British Navy. And uh, and so the letters were then forwarded in a, in a bag of letters to, to Portsmouth. You know, at the time, there were about 20,000 prisoners mm-hmm. of war in England, French prisoners. And so probably that wasn't the priority of the of the British government to try and deal with uh, finding the, the addresses yeah, of, I, of those letters. They, yeah. were, they were meant for sailors. Their loved ones were writing to them. But who exactly were the people writing these letters and sending them? Yes, uh, that's a, a very good question. It took me some time to work this out. Uh, I knew there were letters written mostly by family members, but also sometimes uh, neighbors. Uh, but most of the vast majority of, those, of these letters were written by uh, you know, sailors' wives or uh, fishermen's wives. So that gives us access uh, to uh, a very different kind of, of class, people who usually we don't have, we don't know how they spoke, we don't know how they wrote. Um, they use the first person there in in these documents. So you, you get a much clearer sense of their emotional state and also the complexity and of the, the choices they had to face. They are treasures, clearly, uh, in, in many ways. Can you read us a bit of one? Sure. Um, one that is uh, is quite uh, moving, but also quite typical, uh, because they all those letters express, uh, as I said, a sense of pain and worry, because they were not sure they would be reunited with uh, their dear ones. So one is by someone called Gillette Garnier, who wrote to her husband Jean from Saint-Brieuc in Brittany, to lament, and I quote, the boredom and impatience caused by not being able to enjoy your kind presence, because I can assure you that days last entire months, and months count for years. Or this letter written by uh, Nanette Le Serre, uh, who again uh, talked about her boredom, but also concluded the letter by saying, I cannot wait to possess you. And and this is a, a rare test example of, of uh, physical desire. 
it's so um, uh, these are so yeah. personal and intimate and as i mentioned these were unopened so you know how how did you go about that just the ceremony of that i was exhilarated um when i you know having to you have to go slowly uh, simply because deciphering this stuff is not always uh, mm. easy uh, the writing is sometimes terrible um <laughs> it's written by people who are not necessarily literate so the writing is phonetic uh, they don't uh, use paragraphs mm-hmm. uh, and the st- atrocious spelling uh, i mean i'm not <laughs> judging them well you're I'm judging a little bit this. but it's okay they're not here to be offended <laughs> But at the time, writing was much less standardized. And we're talking about people who probably didn't go to to school for very long, uh, for some of them. Uh, You know, uh, apart from from those unique things, historical, you know, tidbits that you're telling us about, there is also just from the the little excerpts you read, certainly a universality to this and people, uh, relatability. And there was one in particular that caught our eye as well. You know, this is this is a mother, I believe, writing to her son. <laughs> and, you know, he's away in at war, not in the best of circumstances, but she's scolding him, really. Can you read a little bit of that one or, or recount it for our listeners? Uh, yes, with pleasure. <laughs> so um, she, she writes in a, as you said, in a in a in a very tragic way. So if if one is being cynical, uh, she's a, a bit of a drama queen. If one forgets <laughs> about the, con- the context, but she writes on the first day of the year, you have written to your fiance, uh, to her son called Nicolas Kennel, who's in his early twenties. I think it's the least you can do for me to have the slightest preference in writing to me. I think more about you than you about me. And then she continues and she's trying to make him feel guilty. She she adds, in any case, I wish you a happy new year filled with blessings of the Lord. I think I am for the tomb. I have been <laughs> ill for three weeks. Give my compliments to Varin, who's another sailor. It is only his wife who gives me your news. It is. And it keeps on going. Yeah. And then she, she, she talks to the fiancé and said, how come are you corresponding with my son? And uh, so the fiancé writes in turn, to Nicolas and saying, listen, can you please talk to your mother? Because uh, <laughs> she's getting very angry. And uh, it's just the storm is still uh, around us. He's at war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, maybe, uh, but the fact maybe it's, it's better he didn't get that one, though. I wish it wasn't under such horrible circumstances. Perhaps. She, uh, that's the, the big question. Did he get any of uh, his right. mother's letters? And my bet is that he did, because she wrote so many. Just in this pack of uh, archives, <laughs> I found three letters by her. Uh, mothers and sons, uh, a lesson to, yes. to mothers and sons, certainly there. But I wondered, as as I was reading about, you know, your discoveries, there is a tendency, as you know, I'm sure, as a historian, to romanticize wars of of the distant past. And we certainly know now in our in our everyday lives that that there's nothing romantic about war. It's horrific, and we see that on a daily basis, particularly now. So I wonder how that sits with you and what you want people to take away from these kinds of discoveries. I think that's a wonderful point you're making. Uh, There was for a long time a tendency to see the 18th century in particular. It's been described as war in laces, that kind of stuff. In fact, these wars were uh, terrible, terribly violent. Many people died uh, of disease. Uh, Many people died because of malnutrition. And so these letters are... Sure, I I talked about uh, emotions, Mm. but emotions are not just love. They're also about fear, about about pain. The fact that wars are not just about big battles, you know, where we just count numbers of people. I think wars are human experiences, universal human experiences. And that's a rare uh, example of, of how people... Um, felt about this, but also how they did deal with this. And there is something uh, in these letters about a sense of collectivity. So you 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 basically rely on others to 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 deal with those uh, those horrible times. Renaud, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Renaud Moria is a historian at the University of Cambridge in Cambridge, England. He was already a head of state, now he's the heads of state. Today, the Royal Canadian Mint unveiled a new coin design featuring the side profile of King Charles. 
to replace the image of the late Queen Elizabeth, which has graced our currency since 1953. Stephen Rosati is the Canadian artist who created the portrait. We reached him in Winnipeg. Stephen, I wonder what the emotion is that that washes over you in that moment when it's finally unveiled, the first of your coins. Oh, you can't imagine how how, uh, amazing uh, it feels to to see, uh, you know, your work uh, on something so special like uh, like this, uh, this coin. And you've seen it, you know, when we talk about scale, a much larger version of it. So today you saw it on a coin, much smaller, um, much more ubiquitous than your initial sketch. So how does that hit you? Oh, it's just to see, I was part of the, the first striking and uh, the image quality on, on the coin is just um, unbelievable. It's it's perfect. It's uh, It looks even better than... Uh, than um, than what I expected. Let's tell our listeners a little bit about what this portrait of King Charles looks like, the one that you created. I've had a chance to see it, but for those who haven't, describe it for us. Yes, so it, it's the uh, it's a profile of uh, His Majesty uh, uh, King Charles III in the tradition of uh, the, the monarchs and and uh, the history of Canadian coins. Uh, he's looking the uh, the opposite way that of. Uh, uh, that the queen uh, was portrayed. Why is that? That that's in keeping to the tradition of each monarch will will look in the uh, opposite direction. There's some other details too. There's there's a tie, but there's no crown. So those were intentional decisions, I, I'm sure. So why why go that way? Yes, those weren't my decisions. Those mm-hmm. were some of the guidelines that I received from uh, the Royal Canadian Mint. Those kind of decisions were out of my hands. So did so they tell that, you why? Uh, I think they just wanted to go with more of a uh, uh, contemporary look for uh, for the monarch. Casual king. <laughs> yes, casual king. <laughs> with, in terms of the decisions that were left to you, was there one artistic choice that w- was the hardest to, to settle on? Uh, well, I, I did kind of uh, research um, his profile and his photos just to get a, a sense of what he wears, his his style, his his fashion, as casual and also uh, with a uniform. So I got a sense of 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 his style. So those kind of decisions with a style of tie or or the suit kind of uh, were were that was my input. And just creating a profile like that was uh, was very challenging. Um, doing my research of uh, His Majesty and finding photos of profiles of his were not very easy. Some profiles uh, were of him smiling and some were not and some had bad lighting. So uh, my effigy was kind of like pieced together Mm -hmm. to create what you see. Was there an age range you were told to focus on? Uh, Funny enough, there wasn't an age range. I don't remember one, but I I just assumed it would be more of a recent uh, age. You've certainly done portraits of famous people before, but but what's the pressure like when we're talking about the monarch? The pressure was was pretty high for this one, as you can imagine, um, knowing that uh, it it on it's such a, a, a scale uh, viewed by by everyone uh, across the nation. Um, whether they know who who did it or not uh, is uh, is irrelevant. Uh, but knowing that people are seeing my work uh, in such a great scale is, uh, is mind-blowing. Yeah. It's not something you <laughs> dreamed about when you started out as an artist? No, it wasn't even on my radar. <laughs> you know, uh, I've done uh, I've done many, very, many notable uh, uh, people in portraiture and oil portraits, but uh, the amount of um, of eyes seeing this one is, uh, is unimaginable. The king's eyes may have already seen it. I'm sure. <laughs> Any sense yes. of what he thinks of it? I, I don't know what he, uh, what he thought of it, but knowing that they approved it and he he seen it and approved it is enough uh, for me to uh, to be happy about it. We'll see if you'll get a Christmas card from Charles yeah. and Camilla this year. You you mentioned you know whether Canadians know that you you created this image or not. That's that doesn't matter to you. It's also we're we're cashless more and more. You know fewer and fewer people are carrying cash. But does that mm-hmm. does that affect you at all? Well, I, I understand. Uh, the, we live in a world of uh, cashless. Uh, we're using cash much less these days, but. Uh, 
I, I, I don't think that will will go out of our uh, system at all in the in the near future. And um, um, I do um, enjoy the fact of having coins in circulation. I don't think that tradition will be lost any anytime soon. But I do understand the facility of uh, of not carrying around coins. Uh, but uh, we all need them um, in our day to day activities. Have you bought anything with this new coin? Not yet. No, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing it in circulation, though. Yeah, that's for sure. Stephen, thank you. Thank you very much. It was, uh, I appreciate it. Likewise. We reached artist Stephen Rosati in Winnipeg. You can't spell politician without polite, sort of, which is why we're introducing a new segment, American Politicians Behaving Well. Exhibit A, Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen addressing the Teamsters leader Sean O'Brien during a Senate hearing earlier today. Now, let's talk about Mr. O'Brien himself, his behavior. As everybody knows in this hearing, the last time <laughs> him and I kind of had a back and forth. I uh, appreciate your demeanor today. It's quite different. But after you left here, you got pretty excited about the keyboard. In fact, you tweeted at me one, two, three, four, five times. And let me read what the last one said. Um, it said, greedy CEO who pretends like he's self-made. What a clown. Fraud. Always has been. Always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, oh, stop it. Is that your solution? Every problem. No, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Okay. okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Hold it. Hold it. A moment of uh, standard protocol in which one adult senator challenges an adult witness at a Senate hearing to do what two consenting adults do, a phrase that is not usually applied to proposing a fight in a Senate hearing. Fortunately, Chair Bernie Sanders was there to restore order just in time. Sorry, that, that, uh, that did not illustrate the point as well as we intended. So let's try this again. Our inspiring new segment, American Politicians Behaving Well. Here's Representative Tim Burchett recounting an encounter with former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, which I can only assume and hope was collegial, respectful, and productive. Well, I was doing an interview um, with um, Claudia from NPR, uh, a lovely lady, and she was asking me a question. And and at that time, I uh, got elbowed in the back, and it kind of caught me off guard because it was a clean shot to the kidneys. And I turned back, and there was was Kevin. And... um, and I, I, for a minute, I was kind of, what the heck just happened? And then I, um, you know, I, I chased after him. Of course, he's a, as I've stated many times, he's a, he's a bully with seventeen million dollars in a security detail. You know, he's the type of guy that, when you're a kid, would throw a rock over the fence and run home and hide behind his mama's skirt. And he just, you know, he, he, uh, from behind that kind of stuff. It, you know, that's not the way we handle things in East Tennessee. We, we if we have a problem with somebody, I'm gonna look him in the eye. May not have been the best day to launch this particular segment, but, but, you know, we are only getting one side here. And Kevin McCarthy has responded, telling CNN, quote, I didn't shove or elbow him. It's a tight hallway, unquote. So there you go. Just a big misunderstanding. He was probably just trying to pat him on the back. So, oh, the NPR reporter has confirmed it all. And and there's tape, including the sound of Mr. Burchett chasing after Mr. McCarthy to, I guess, look him in the eye. I guess we have to hear it. So here's our brand new segment, Politicians Behaving Away. Why'd you elbow me in the back, Kevin? Hey, Kevin, you got any guts? Jerk. Has he done that before? No. Huh. That's a I'm new move. Oh. Oh. I 
you got no guts. You didn't so. They sat there, and the reporter said it right there. What kind of chicken move is that? You're you're pathetic, man. You are so pathetic. Starting to see what Congressman Higgins was talking about. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.